Welcome to the JetRails podcast, supporting you through the airwaves with information about website and e-commerce technology and strategies from design and development to security, marketing, conversion rate optimization, and web hosting. We bring you insights from industry leaders and experts hosted, edited, and published by me, Robert Rand, your friendly neighborhood tech ambassador. Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert, your host. Today, we're going to be talking all about what's happened in Q4 of 2020. A uh, bit of a chaotic year in so many ways. Uh, very, very unpredictable. Uh, more than any year I can think of. And uh, in the e-commerce industry specifically, as we headed into the holiday shopping season, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, um, and through the end of the year. Lots of data, lots of lessons learned. And so uh, today we've brought together a couple of experts from the industry. We've got Jane from Cloud Cafe, as well as Russ from Brand Nexity. And uh, we're going to let each uh, introduce themselves and get the show on the road. So Jane, uh, with no further ado, if you wouldn't mind starting us off. Sure. Well, Robert, it's very nice talking with you again and Russ. So I've been with uh, Cloud Cafe. They actually have a very interesting background. I'm currently with them, uh, helping them as their VP of sales. Sanjeev actually came uh, to the United States back in the mid 90s and was instrumental uh, in working with uh, building out one of the first platforms for large companies like Exxon and others to be able to go online and search H1Bs for resumes online. So if you can remember the 1990s, which I remember them as being in high school and trying to find people on AOL Instant Messenger. But um, other people that were working in the 1990s remember them as really large computers. Um, it was a fantastic way for people to be able to find the talent that was needed to work on these computer systems. And so with that in mind, he was able to innovate a lot of these um, newer systems that we have in place today with IT recruiting. So my background, I actually have my bachelor's in marketing uh, with a minor in accounting, um, but basically from a young age, I started in um, computer programming. My mother was a computer programmer, so I started developing in basic and quick basic, which if you guys know anything of what that means, it's a whole bunch of lines. I love QBasic. <laughs> it's been a while, but... It was fun. Basic really sucked, and then... C++ was awful, uh, but that's my personal opinion. So after realizing that programming really wasn't my forte, I took a stab at accounting, did some real estate, then went into telecom sales, and then followed suit with some IT staffing and ended up into computer solutions with cyber going into onshore offshore development. And so since then, I've really been able to help lead teams and companies to grow uh, two to 500% year-over-year growth to be able to come in and help companies, small to mid-sized companies, as well as Fortune 500, to be able to build out their teams and meet the demands of the ever-changing technology landscape, uh, especially in the areas of retail, um, uh, supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, um, logistics, as well as marketing technology, and um, some strategic solutions as well. So um, that's a little bit about me. And with Cloud Cafe, they really focus on innovating. They have a lot to do with both um, predictive, but also prescriptive analytics. 
which a lot of people don't hear a lot about because everybody's like, oh, everybody's sort of predictive or prescriptive. If you're able to actually create the analytics before you know what you need, that's where the future is going with machine learning and AI. So that's where they're focused on moving forward with. Awesome. Yeah, I'll add there, um, Jane, you and I have been getting to catch up other than this past year, pretty consistently for years and years of trade shows and and events. And so, you know, I, I've always considered you an industry insider. Uh, you know, you've managed lots of partnerships and relationships in the industry and, um, you know, really great to finally get you on, on the podcast. And with that, Russ, I'm, I'm going to turn it over because I can say some pretty similar things about you that uh, I know you have a background that goes back into the merchant side of the industry and and has really um, helped to springboard you to, to where you are now, um, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Robert. Uh, so uh, as Jane said, you know, really those uh, early days of uh, internet is when we got started, you know, uh, really right back in around 1999 is uh, when I got uh, into kind of business on our own, but I worked for a company in 97, you know, really the early days of the internet, you know, kind of seen those evolutions over the years, whether it was marketplaces and people moving, uh, you know, their business onto uh, websites and, you know, the whole boom and bust of, uh, you know, the popularity of platforms like eBay um, and, uh, you know, the rise of uh, Amazon, obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, years ago, I remember somebody coming into my office and saying, you know, have you uh, heard of this Google company? I'm like, Google, what's that? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, there was even a point when, uh, you know, we, uh, we said with Amazon, you know, they, they had uh, done Z shops, um, and they were trying to compete with eBay. And all of our business at the time was on eBay. And, you know, we were invited over there and it was terrible. The sales were terrible. And we said that Amazon company is never going to catch on, um, you know, if they keep up at this pace. And it's just funny to see the evolution. And that's kind of where we've been. Um, currently, uh, I have a co-founder of an agency called Brand Nexity. Um, we're a little bit of a hybrid company. We still do keep our roots in uh, owning and operating some e-commerce uh, websites of our own. But then we have clients that we extend those services and expertise to. So it makes us a little bit different because uh, we're actually in the trenches uh, with e-commerce every day for our own business. And then we get that broad experience of dealing with, you know, uh, small and mid-sized retailers and some of the challenges that um, have come along, um, you know, even still today with marketplaces, but their own websites and algorithms and you know, the logistics this year, as we'll get into a little later, you know, how cumbersome they've been. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit about me. So been been around for about 20 years. And Robert said, you know, as he said, all the trade shows we get together and, <laughs> you know, kind of have a good chat about what's going on in the industry. I And I think that some of that broad background, um, not that it's particularly hard to get into the e-commerce industry today, but knowing where things started and how they evolved and why sometimes gives you just a little edge <laughs> in certain things, which I think is for applies to a lot of things in life. Um, you know, I, as I'm hearing about, you know, the nineties and AOL and other things, you know, I'm remembering being, you know, uh, on the internet with prodigy and CompuServe and all these, these early services and um, you know, just how things have evolved through the years. And, so I'm going to jump right in, um, talk about that evolution. You know, this was an extremely uh, unique year. Were merchants ready 
for the logistical challenges that Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and the holiday shopping season threw out at them this year um, in terms of their e-commerce sites being ready, their shipping channels being ready, all everything that, that went into it, you know, or did each of you see any major uh, hiccups along the way or I don't want to say horror stories, but maybe challenges because <laughs> sometimes these are good things. I mean, sometimes, you know, in a lot of cases, companies, you know, they may have had challenges, but it may still have been a record year. So, mm. uh, you know, you take the good and the bad. Merchants are never ready, ever. It doesn't matter how often you try to get in front of them beforehand. You can start in January and try to explain to them, you have to be ready. You have to do this. You have to do that. Uh, unfortunately, and I have lots of retailer friends that are probably going to shake their heads at me. They are notoriously cheap. They try to get by with the least possible way of getting things done. And they don't realize in the long run how much that hurts them by being penny wise and cash poor. The thing is, is that it's like with these bots that bought up all of the PS5s. You didn't really think that a programmer was going to figure out how to clear out a blurred photo? Really? Hmm. With all the AI we have in the entire world, you think your blurry photograph was going to stop a bot at some point? Yeah. And I think that's a particularly interesting one. You know, in in hosting, we deploy uh, different things on on the edge networks, um, things that that work, uh, you know, as part of firewalling and and bot protection and mitigation. And the number of people that actually ask about that side of of the security chain is just few and far between. You know, they usually they have to get burned first. So, you know, I've heard stories about all kinds of industries that this applies to, to ticket sales for events that open and close to, um, you know, so imagine, you know, things like, uh, you know, big sporting events or other things, limited capacity seating, uh, limited edition products like, you know, those hot sneakers that they're only going to make a thousand or 5,000 pieces and, uh, you know, pairs of, of shoes and, you know, everybody wants them and they can sell them immediately for more. So, uh, you know, at, at that point, you're in trouble <laughs> if you don't have the right protection. So that's the PS5 was a particularly interesting one because there were people. It was a brick and mortar problem too. People were showing up at stores and couldn't get them. Um, that websites said that they were in stock and they weren't in line, and they didn't physically have them even in the store. So at what point do you walk outside and say, "Hey guys, we don't actually have them at all." Yeah. I wouldn't want to face that mob. Why <laughs> no. do you actually say, look, I know it's freezing out here, but the trucks that are coming in aren't bringing them. They're right. not here. So you should just go home. You know, and that's, and, and that's kind of a, kind of an interesting point. You know, the truck's not showing up. Cause I think, you know, when you kind of look back even to early in the year, when uh, the pandemic uh, wasn't really even talked about, except in early January, nobody really had a concern about it. Then all of a sudden, February, March kind of hit, and um, you know those supply chains, you know, really started to seize up. 
um, you know, whether it was, you know, the Chinese factories or the Indian factories, all the overseas companies were having a hard time starting to keep their staff, you know, kind of producing those goods. So I think, you know, the challenges of the holiday season really almost started early in the year with all of those uh, seize ups of supply chain. And then, you know, the retail merchants that we dealt with and even ourselves, it was so uncertain what was going to happen later in the year people started to conserve cash to your point of being, you know, the penny wise, um, you know, kind of thing, because nobody knew what was going to happen. So I think a lot of breaks went on to, you know, what the plans were early on in the year. Um, you know, maybe we should wait and see and, and do with what, deal with what we've got this year. And then maybe look at it, you know, after, after this happens. And then it kind of, the wave kind of broke, um, I think, going into summer, where people realize, wow, people are sitting at home. Maybe they're not spending on meals out, but now they're starting to spend on e-commerce, um, you know, instead. And then that, you know, transition, that wave started to hit again, um, you know, later in the year. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great point that you know some of the challenges were they ready? I don't think anybody was ready for anything that happened this year because the curve was completely in reverse. And there was no transparency. The manufacturers weren't talking to the distributors. The distributors weren't talking to the retailers. And the thing was, is that how can you have any realistic predictive analytics or any type of analytics if nobody's sharing information? Mm. Everybody's trying to be all in for themselves. And all that did was cause more chaos between everyone. And we're not getting shipments in because whether it be the tariffs or issues happening here and there, um, the issues with COVID, but also, you know, and I know that we're going to pick up this point at some point. You know, it's the, the whole reverse logistics of it all. You know, when you take returns, and this can go back to the days of coupons, when you had coupons, there was a mathematical algorithm for it. You had said number of coupons that would be cashed in, said number that people would forget about and leave it at home, and then said number that people don't even use. But when it comes to other things like, um, rebates and other stuff when you're dealing with online, it completely goes out the window. And so what ends up happening is, is that you've got people expecting to get these discounts, get these rebates. And then when you don't have the inventory to back it up, and it may not be the retailer's fault, it may not even be the distributor's fault. It could have been the manufacturer's fault and they knew about it since the beginning. And then all of a sudden, you've got this whole backlash. And the thing is, is not only with the, the couponing and the rebates and ebates piece, you then got the returns. Because when people walk into a store and purchase something, returns usually range between 5 to 10%. Because then you have to drive all the way back to the store, go through the whole line, get your refund. Maybe it'll be in cash. Maybe it'll be back on a card. And that's it. But now because everybody's home on COVID, nobody's going in and out of the stores, everything's getting sent through the, the mail, 3PLs, logistics. It's insane. And it goes from 5 to 10% to 15 to 40%. USPS quoted for this year alone roughly $37 billion with a B in returns. And who's checking those returns? Are they actually sending back the products or are they just sending back an empty box with a label on it? Uh, did they break the product and then just decide to send it back because it was within 30 days? 
Or was it going back to Amazon who gave an extra 60 or 90 day window? So, well, and so that's actually an interesting one. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot there uh, for us to unpack, but uh, I'm going to go right into that, um, in, into that returns process because, you know, we know that that's a long-term issue in the market. Russ, I know your team has been working uh, to solve that for yourselves and for different merchants over time. Uh, what, what does that look like when it comes to, you know, you're using Amazon FBA or, or some 3PL and, you know, now it's time for the returns. And, and do we even know what's happened this year yet? Because Amazon extended the returns window as, as Jane mentioned. Um, so there may still be more product getting returned, um, that, uh, can merchants even do the math on 2020 yet? Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, really interesting because there's still uh, even a backup in delivering uh, packages. I know that I'm still waiting on a package that uh, was shipped on December 15th, is sitting somewhere in San Diego, California, um, and hasn't made it here. And and we're seeing that with different merchants, especially ones who have used post office, uh, as you mentioned, USPS. Um, their network, you know, is so backed up still to this day um, that you may not know the real impact of those returns that are sitting there. I know in dealing uh, with customers, you know, the customers um, are looking to the merchants to make up for the sins of the carrier. Um, and not only does it become a returns issue, but it becomes a customer service uh, nightmare and customer retaliation um, kind of issue. Because at the end of the day, the merchant is the weakest uh, in the link of, you know, even something like this. Because if uh, you know, I complain, uh, PayPal's got my back or my credit card has my back, all I have to do is raise a, a charge back against that merchant. And you know, merchant uh, doesn't really have a prayer when those trackings uh, are, are updating. So I think this year in particular, we're not going to know the backlash um, for a little bit yet. I think uh, you know, there's extended windows. It's early in the year. Um, you know, people physically getting um, out to some of these uh, returns locations to even drop off their package, uh, maybe impede it in some places. Um, so I, I think that's a that's a huge, uh, huge, uh, you know, unknown uh, here. And, you know, to Jane's point of that, you know, five to 10 percent versus 15 to 40 percent, um, you know, kind of returns ratio. Um, you know, I think the other thing that merchants, uh, you know, when they're kind of pushing sales and pushing products and different things like that, one of the considerations that they never uh, or often do not take into consideration is what impact does returns actually have on my net profitability? Um, you know, we all look at our return on ad spend when we go out on Facebook and our return on ad spend when we go out on Google, and that is for making the sale. But what is my uh, normalized or rationalized or net return on ad spend when I take all of those costs uh, back into the chain? And um, I think that's an important calculation for people to start you know, taking a look at is if I'm getting 40% back and I'm getting a 10x ROAS, well, really my ROAS becomes maybe six. Um, and how does that actually impact my bottom line margin um, when, I'm, when I'm taking those factors into consideration? And that's the other big whale that I'm referring to, because the other big whale I'm talking about is that if you're getting this amount of returns, how are you getting rid of those returns? Are you just repackaging and reselling them? Are you liquidating them? Are you sending them off to things like eBay? 
are because I believe that we're going to have a lot more secondhand marketplaces popping up. Like there, there's one called ThreadUp that's selling, you know, gently used clothes, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a brilliant idea because most people decide to wear clothes a few times and get rid of them, right? Because there were certain things that came out like Stitch Fix and, you know, um, those beauty boxes and stuff, which made absolutely no sense for me. Of course, I have to admit, I was one of the first people that signed up for them. (laughs) And after like six months, I'm like, I don't need any more shit. Like, what am I supposed to do with all of this? Like, I don't need more pants. I don't need more shirts. Like, what what am I supposed to do with all the rest of it? There was no way to recycle or give or, you know, I mean, I would give to like the Goodwill and stuff. But there's certain places, which I didn't even know this because I tried to give away my uh, stove and fridge and stuff when I went to... um, when I bought new ones, but like the Salvation Army doesn't accept appliances. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Even if they're working, they don't take them. And so uh, there's going to, and so then this just becomes a whole bunch of waste. So all these samples and other things that people are thinking, oh, these are great. These fat, fib, fun, whatever they're called, boxes that are coming out for people sample all this stuff. But then after you have these subscriptions for long periods of time, all you do is accumulate waste. Well, that's a good point. There's no, there's no returning that stuff, uh, you know, when it's, when it's in the boxes and, uh, you know, on, on that waste front, um, we deal with uh, several uh, international companies um, and Amazon, as you know, is a direct to consumer almost marketplace now uh, from manufacturer. um, You know, I almost like to call it thread to consumer um, because they're they're the manufacturers, they're the distributors, and they're the retailers, kind of all in one. Except some of them only have bases in in China or someplace overseas, so they drop a container in the United States, um, and if it doesn't work, they're often just paying Amazon to throw it in the trash. Um, and uh, what they're doing the trash. I think that, yeah. can we brand that D2L? Is that direct to landfill? Is that the next <laughs> channel that's opened up that people haven't realized? Well, I think that's a good point. And, and the guys that we deal with, um, you know, they'll admit that um, it's uh, the margin is built in to throw away that 40% that you're talking about. So the, the consumer is paying the actual end cost of taking 40% of what doesn't work, 40% of what gets returned, 40% of what doesn't sell and uh, subsidizing um, the seller to pay Amazon to uh, dig up, you know, it's like the ET tapes back in the day, right? Atari just dumped, you know, all the ET tapes because they couldn't get rid of them. Um, You know, we're, we're in that new era where there's so many ET tapes out there that are failed products that are, you know, products that uh, got returned. And, you know, there was an article I just pulled up from uh, a snack, uh, Robin Hood snacks they send around, uh, you know, for the investors. And Amazon's policy this year, a lot of times has been throw it away. You know, I don't want it back. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I think that is a problem when big companies also put that, uh, we used to call it a field destroy. Um, and it was a rare occasion and it might be something that was so beat up or so used that it wasn't worth getting it back. So it was cheaper to have the customer keep it and throw it away. Um, but obviously, I think you were alluding to it before, uh, Jane, you know, that leads to abuse. How many empty boxes have come back? Do they even open up some of those boxes? Um, and what's the excuses for customers actually returning stuff? 
Um, you know, one of the things that we see all the time is that um, if it's damaged, Amazon gives you a free return. But if it's something I didn't like, you're paying to send that return back. Um, so customers, um, you know, hopefully there's no white liars listening to this podcast. <laughs> not as described, item broken or item arrived too late. Those are right. my three. Right. Other so you're not paying for it back. I'm not paying to give it back. I, but That's I'm right. like a gold, platinum, or black hard number with Amazon. But you know what's funny is I've gotten packages where I've had several items in it, and I'll be missing an item. Mm. And a little tidbit about me when I was in college. So back in the day, I worked for a company called, I don't know if I should say SB Richards. But anyway, they were an office supply company. So I got to drive a little forklift, you know, at like 19 years old. I <laughs> pallet, done some crazy stuff. But I would have to fill these little buckets with pens and staplers and stuff. They charged crazy amounts. It was like 30 bucks for a stapler. I, I don't understand how big government it. stapler. Must <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. So I get the box and then whatever I ordered that was supposed to be in the box wasn't in there. Amazon, especially when they start using their own logistics companies then stated, oh, well, it said it was delivered. There's a picture. So I live in a condo building here in Tampa. So there's a picture of a like crate of boxes and my box is somewhere in there. And they said, I needed to contact the Tampa police department to let them know that my $5 item was missing and to file a police report in order to get refunded on said item. Wow. And I was like, are you kidding me? As much money as I spend with you guys and somebody forgot to put the thing in the box and I'm going to go file a police report. No, no, no. There's something wrong here. But like you're saying, though, I have a feeling that they're having multiple people just send back empty boxes or doing just random yeah, stuff. Well, uh, that. And Jane, so I, I think I know where you're headed with the one item was missing from the box, because that can be a challenge with some of these systems. I've seen at least at one point where uh, the automated systems have a hard time handling that. It's like, did you get the package? Yes or no? Well, the the logic isn't there to say that the one item wasn't in the box with the others. Exactly. Yeah. So at that point, yeah. you know, you have to figure out how do you respond to them on it I because all that nail file and if they don't give me another 99 cent nail file, you know. I'm well, and, and what's interesting with these big guys is that um, and I've actually seen it the, even with a guy uh, who runs a cigar company. Um, there's sophisticated systems now that if you know all the weights, you know, and the box gets double weighed, right, it gets scanned in, you know, they kind of have that, that picture of it and it gets weighed on the way out. Um, you know, but to your point, there's a lot of uh, maybe unscrupulous players in the chain of custody after handoff um, that ends up, you know, causing these issues, whether it is somebody who stole it on your step or, you know, if your bubble mailer was slightly opened, you know, somebody had their, you know, uh, fingers in the cookie well, it jar. Could be, it could be user error. 
There's so much stuff in there I could have thrown away by accident. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, it could I have been I the operator saw, yeah. too who, who, who stuffed it to begin with. <laughs> That's true. But I think that what I'm hearing is that if we really want to take down Amazon's marketplace, all that we really need to do is tell everyone to go start sending bricks back in the packages of the exact right weight, you know, and, and that that'll take care of business, right? <laughs> well, Bezos recently stated that he plans on Amazon going bankrupt sometime soon. So if that's some foreshadowing, I'm a little worried because if, you know, Tesla didn't donate any money to charity last year or it was $870 and then Bezos is planning on going bankrupt, I'm not exactly sure what's happening in America today. <laughs> oh, those are good questions. Uh, <laughs> not ones that I'm prepared to answer today, but <laughs> good questions. Um, you know, so... We've talked a little bit about the logistical challenges and, you know, some of these are long term. I mean, forever companies would import from overseas, bring in containers, you know, what, what they couldn't sell to, let's say, firsthand retailers or what came back from firsthand retailers, let's say from, you know, the Macy's and Bloomingdale's and, uh, you know, and, and, and Saks and Nordstrom's of the world at, at the time. Uh, maybe they they pushed at a fraction of a price over to TJ Maxx and Marshalls. Um, and there are umpteen ways that these things happen, or they sold um, to, uh, to additional markets, maybe, you know, outside the U.S. where they could get something for it. Um, and so in some ways, I think that this is a little bit of a pivot and an exacerbation uh, in terms of what we're seeing. But it's not necessarily revolutionary. I think that, you know, one of the other trends that I saw this holiday season, e-commerce merchants in terms of their traffic, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them had had increased traffic starting around March and April, uh, if not at least, uh, you know, into the summer and different industries, there were waves uh, of increased traffic as people were not shopping in store and were seeking online refuge <laughs> for their, their shopping needs. And so there were businesses that earlier in the year just had traffic spikes and surges and, and had challenges related to it. Um, then when we, by the time we got into Q4, uh, you know, when we got to Black Friday, Cyber Monday week, um, you know, I remember that Wednesday, Amazon had a major outage, I want to say, uh, in Virginia. And so there were a lot of major sites down um, before we even got to Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of these stores were already seeing spikes when normally some of that waits until Black Friday or later. And that it some of these levels were sustained. So the predictability... Um, was different. And part of what I realized was the companies that thought that because they'd already been dealing with a surge in earlier months, that they were ready, weren't really ready. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I saw some big names go down and, um, and, and Jane, I know you shot over to me. Uh, Costco, it was Costco. I was just looking it up because I was trying to remember there was Costco. Because, you know, what I think what happened was, is that a lot of people thought that Everybody started promoting Black Friday at the beginning of November. Black Friday's here. We're having to sell all month long. Mm -hmm. It's just going to go all month long. And then as you got closer and closer to Black Friday, things got lower and lower. One thing that I actually personally noticed, the sales got better and better the closer you got to 
December 26th. I don't know why Boxing Day was the cheapest to buy stuff on this year, but worked for me because I didn't buy too much of Black Friday. I didn't have very much to buy anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, the thing was is that everything had been popped up for so long. And I think the thing with Black Friday and the whole hook of it and even with Amazon Day in July and stuff is that people are wanting to wait in line. It's, it's a contact sport. It's a um, thing that people are expecting to get physical with. You sitting online and waiting, if you've ever been on unemployment and you had to sit in a waiting line to get in to fill out your unemployment application, that's about what it felt like when you were trying to wait to get online to go buy something at Walmart during this time. Mm-hmm. It was really boring. So yeah. nobody was super excited to be like, oh, yeah, I got this. Because the problem was, is the bots bought up everything anybody wanted before they wanted it. Nobody had any, any protections against the bots. And nobody even thought about it. Nobody even, I'm saying we're thinking it was like, everybody's talking about the Russians hacking us, China's hacking us, everybody's hacking everybody, but nobody's thinking about, well, what about tickets and, you know, new technology? Yeah, it's funny, though, you know, this year maybe uh, increased that amount of, uh, you know, activity. People but bored. You know those hackers yeah. were sitting around trying to <laughs> get, get off on. They had me but like, the, we've got to figure out a way to do something right. cool this year. The original, uh, the original was sniping on eBay, right? I think there used to be little programs that you could use to snipe on eBay uh, that was in the hands, but now the bots are down to milliseconds. And, yeah, so the, those and, eBay and, bots, they would basically just put in those bids at the very last second to grab up the right. item be- without giving the the other bidders a chance to beat them out because it was so well-timed. That's right. Yeah, sniping was a, a huge thing on eBay in the day. And I think really we're looking at the modern version of sniping on these popular sorry items. For you Apple users, it's usually the Linux, Unix, and Android people that get <laughs> and Apple really sucks at being able to jailbreak things and maybe <laughs> But I, I think to your point, Gina, of you know shopping being a, a contact sport or you know what was used to be termed as America's pastime, uh, favorite pastime was going out and shopping um you know that that has declined and i think some of those indoor you know malls people don't like to feel trapped anymore going inside a mall and and being there for so long like so now you've got everybody on i'm sorry i am not up with tiktok i maybe i'm too old now (laughs) i don't get the whole thing i mean some of them are kind of funny i guess um but uh the thing is is that you have people overproducing these videos and you don't have people just being out in public showcasing items that they went out and purchased, Mm. which creates that envy, creates that jealousy, creates that want for these items. And because of that, it's not going to create the want and need. What it reminds me of is back in 2017, I remember being at shop.org. And I was sitting at a round table and I was sitting with one of the heads of Nike and um, I think it was Nordstrom's or somewhere. Anyway, Nike had a certain pair of shoes for Dolce Gabbana. I didn't even know 
Nike Mate, Dolce Gabbana shoes because, well, I don't like Nike shoes. I, I personally think they're too slender. I guess I have wide feet. I don't know. But even though as I sit here, I have a pair of Nikes on. Um, but their in-store experience, you go in, they take you back to this very lush, plush room. You sit on like this little round couch. They bring you out some champagne. They unveil these Dolce Gabbana shoes for you. You try them on, and I'm sure they're in the thousands of dollars. And so the guy wanted to understand how he could bring the in-store experience into the home. And I looked at him and I said, are you stupid? <laughs> I'm very candid, obviously. That's why most of my clients like me. And then probably the other half don't like me. Um, because they make I'm, money, so it's okay. <laughs> right. Um, because why would you ever want them to want this in their home? You want them to come in the store because that's what makes them feel special. That's why Gucci and all these other places created these massive in-store experiences because you want them there. You want them to feel special. So the only thing close you can get to this is an unboxing experience. And if you've seen the videos of unboxing experiences, yeah, they're kind of cool. You might have their name on the paper and on the box and all this. But if you're unwrapping, I mean, I've paid three grand for a pair of handmade um, Gemini uh, Italian made boots from Italy. This, they hurt my feet. I don't ever wear them, but I paid for them. The unboxing was nice. It came with a nice little bag. You stick them in and everything else. I've worn them like three times, but if I had been flown to Italy to pick them up and they like brought me out some really nice Chianti and we sat there and I tried them on or some, you know, Sangiovese and, you know, they wind and dine me and I put them on and I paid three grand for these shoes. You better believe I would have probably worn them more than three times than paying three grand and have them shipped to me. And not return them. I think that's a, a good point is that, wow. you know, that, that, so. that in-store experience, you know, when you go into that in-store experience, you're touching it, you're feeling it, you're adopting uh, that product and you're making sure you're that the fit, it, especially. It's right. Not and then it becomes more transactional online. So, you know, I, I, all right, these don't fit, send them back. It's annoying, you know, versus if I went out and I had the experience with my friends, I got the right pair of shoes. I'm going to wear it. It's actually fit right. So I think, you know, from that return standpoint and, and to your point of the shopping in the in-store experience, you know, we have a, a chain of stores around here called Ollie's. I think there's, you know, 170, no, no. 170 stores or something like that. And they're a closeout place, right? But they only exist as an exploratory shopping experience. You walk in there and they just got a truckload of crap and you're like, wow, this is cool to dig through, right? And you don't yeah. have that cool to dig through crap experience. Yeah, um, look, you, people go online. Garage sales, flea markets. Right. There's something to be said for the experience, uh, and I think that that's where Omnichannel hit a little bit of a curve this past year, because you know there are benefits to having someone buy online, return in store. They come in the store. Chances are, you've got a good shot at selling them something. Uh, or making an exchange or something that you didn't lose them. When we're dealing with e-commerce, yeah, maybe, you know, uh, on certain platforms and sites, 
they might choose a replacement item. They need a different size, perhaps, and that's not too hard. A lot of time lost in shipping and what have you. Um, some friction there and, you know, having to box things up and, you know, and, and take it to a shipping place where you're probably not going to derive any other value out of that visit. Whereas, you know, you go to, to a store and at least, yeah, okay, you pick out something else. It's a nice experience. I, I think that there's a lot of this jumble um, that we ran into where so much moved to e-commerce so precipitously that not all, not, not all merchants could keep up with it. Salespeople that are getting paid on commission, you've got um, people that remember people by name. They're like, I already know what pair of shoes you're going to want to buy because I've already put them inside for you. You've got that personalized experience. It's not like you're going down to Denny's and you say hi to Joe that's been smoking for 50 years. And she's like, hey, I got the cherry pie you like. I'll bring it out with a cup of coffee. That's you an experience know. too. <laughs> I mean, it is an experience growing up in a very small town. I know what that's like. But, you know, the thing is, is that everybody's trying to understand what this usability experience is. And in my, you know, uh, 15, 20 years of being in e-commerce and dealing with um, not only B2B, but some B2C, the thing is, is that if you don't make someone feel like they're the only person in the room, they don't feel like the only person in the room. And so they're going to treat you like a transaction, exactly how they feel like they're being treated. Yeah. And I think that's so much of what e-commerce, uh, you know, is like, is that loss of uh, personal experience. And I think that shows through in you know, I don't have that emotional attachment. I'm just going to send it back. In fact, I'm not even going to wrap it back in the original packaging. I'm just going to throw that uh, aquarium back in the box. Um, and by the time we get it, it's a, you know, a baby rattle, you know, a sharp baby rattle um, of glass, um, you know, coming back. So I, I think that's super important. And to your point of the, you know, how do you at least then mitigate some of the um, issues that come with not having that in-store experience or that, you know, how do you get closer to that 5 to 10% um, returns rate of a traditional retail store? I think retailers have to work upstream. And a lot of them uh, don't take the time to work upstream because they're so focused on the outbound that, again, they forget about what that inbound uh, is to their business. And a few of those things that we always recommend, um, especially in clothing, you know, size charts, you know, are your size charts easy to find? But then are they easy to follow? You know, are they true? Um, you know, one of the things that we've recommended to companies is sort of that fit tips, you know, runs a size larger, runs a size smaller, because a lot of times these people who own the stores know that that Italian shoe brand or, you know, that particular brand doesn't run um, true to size or, you know, a favorite one we always see is, you know, items that are uh, in European sizes on the website. And Americans trying Those to convert are not that. American sizes, ladies. Those are not American sizes. They do not convert the same way, right? And, uh, you know, people not knowing how to measure that. So really taking that time to, to figure out how to measure. Um, and then, you know, are, is your returns policy even easy to find? Um, you know, sometimes customers just assume that they can return it within 30 days and then there's a friction when they can't. And then, you know, you're, there's a restocking fee or yeah, there's a restocking fee, you know, and sometimes that liberal returns policy gets them to purchase, 
you know, more, but purchasing more may not be the best thing for your business. You know, the Zappos model, you know, how many retailers I see, you know, go up and say, well, Zappos gives free return shipping both ways. Well, you ain't Zappos and you don't have the same uh, postage rates that Zappo gets, um, you know, for, for that. And you don't have the volume to make up for all of the, the errors uh, that kind of go along with that. Or the the prowess with the manufacturer that when everything comes back damaged, that you take a 10% you know, rebate um, on all of your initial purchases. So, you know, just copycatting what other people's, um, you know, policies are. And I think to Jane's point, you know, how do you get more personal with that experience? You know, if somebody puts three pairs of boots in the cart and checks out, you know, maybe having a mechanism before it goes out with size six, seven, and eight to say, hey, pick up the phone, give them a call, you know, walk them through what the fit is on this boot, and maybe we can stop a return, you know, kind of in its tracks. So I do think it's more hands-on uh, to stop those returns in their tracks. I do think, you know, so putting more pictures up, you know, uh, you know, the reviews, the social proof, you know, is it really what people are expecting? Is it not? And I'm not talking about Amazon reviews where they're all manipulated. I'm talking about <laughs> store reviews where, you know, you can actually uh, get your consumers. I was on with one of my clients today and, and he sells these type of bags and uh, he has about 320 reviews on his website, not on a marketplace or any place. And it's about a $400 bag. And uh, he said, you know, people come back and he told us, I read all 320 reviews before purchasing um, that because he was getting that emotional kind of experience of what's it going to be like, you know, to have that. So I do think that putting the stopgap in returns is one of the future ways that retailers should be thinking about not dealing with it when it gets back and all the troublesome things that it causes like landfill issues and warehouse backups. And, yeah. you know, I got to refund you right away, even though I've got a pile of returns that are going to take me 30 days because the customer, if I don't refund them, is going to be upset. And then when I finally get it, I have no recourse against the customer. Um, how about stopping well, those? Returns? And you got to stop the chargebacks because if you don't take care of that customer, they've been trained to just call a credit card company. And then even if um, it turns out that you win uh, the the chargeback, the dispute that they they've put in, so you you know you go through the process, that's going to take a lot of time. There are fees involved, no matter what, that you're not going to get out of as a merchant. Yeah. Um, so it's a lose lose already. And I end up with a chargeback percentage. You know, the the credit card companies have the right to raise the rates for companies who have too many chargebacks. Absolutely. Um, so, so to that, or you can even lose your merchant account if there's too many chargebacks. Um, yeah. so. I think the best way a lot of retailers can start to try and build true and honest relationships with their customers, unlike Hulu, who's now trying to help you de- Design your own ad experiences, which is, I think is a load of crock. That's my personal opinion. Um, is that they really need to try and do more surveys, actually try and have their employees care, you know, because unfortunately for a lot of retailers, especially in brick and mortar stores. They just hire random people just to work the registers and not really care about anybody. Most of them aren't paid on commissions or anything else. And then, you know, understanding this idea of having a red carpet experience or something else. And the only way it's really going to come down, in my opinion, 
is if it comes down from the top brands on the way down. Because the thing is, is yes, we're always going to have transactional brands. It's just the way it's going to be. People are going to be like, yes, I want wet and mild makeup because it's 99 cents and it works for me. And I know how to use it. But then there's other brands that they know that they have something special, but the only way for them to get it out there is by having their YouTube videos or having their ability to contact their unhappy customer and say, well, how did you use it? And how many days? And well, what happened? But the thing is, is that the big elephants in the room for me that I really want to touch on today was one, retailers realizing that they were going to have a lot more returns because of COVID, point blank. Um, The fact that all of these sample boxes, butcher boxes, whatever boxes are going to create a lot more waste and where is this going to go to? The uprise of a lot more marketplaces for used items, whether they be refurbished or just used or opened or anything else, because loss prevention and everything else, insurance on these items and everything else is, is going to go up. Um, you know, how are they being disposed of? Is it just being thrown away? Is it being good, given to good causes? Because I personally think um, in the younger generation, They are looking for companies to look to give things to good causes, especially if it's been returned. I mean, if you're just going to throw away, you might as well give it to a good cause unless it can be. And then really, how are we going to help logistics and distribution companies deal with all of this influx? Because, you know, we all want our packages, but if you've got $37 billion of returns coming in at one point in time after Christmas, you've got a shit ton of things coming in while you got another whole thing of, you know, we've got all of our WGs coming out right now. Everything's got to get out by January 31st. So, I mean, there's so many big elephants in the room that nobody's touching. And unfortunately in our environment in the federal government today, that there's a lot of fires that are happening that retailers and manufacturers and distributors and transportation companies need to take the illness on themselves to try and help to find some of these solutions so that we're not all scrambling at the same time and just using the same methods we've always used to point fingers at everybody else. To that point, I think even the customer experience uh, that it was well said that transactional is has a necessity, especially for certain types of products or markets. And Amazon is transactional. There's no relationship there. There's not a lot of education there for the shopper. It's not really a place to engage in a, a journey of discovery or um, to really, you know, build up some kind of um, rapport. Uh, it's a place to find things and hopefully find some satisfaction with them. Uh, once you sort of already know what you're looking for, um, where you want to be with it. Merchants with e-commerce sites can really have the opposite effect. And we've all seen 
businesses trying that for years. Now, there are the omni-channel ones that have brick and mortar. And so they can do a lot with trying to meld in-store and, and online. And that's fantastic. And you know we've had podcast episodes on that and that'll continue to evolve. But I think for those that even that are just trying to focus on how do they improve strictly their online store uh, and the the experience of it, I had someone on the podcast a few months back um, talking about using individual videos with shoppers, and they were giving examples like um, you know uh, someone that was selling gourmet coffee. Uh, I'll you know just peg it as. And they were taking videos as they were roasting the coffee and packaging it up for individuals. And this was your package of coffee hand mm -hmm. roasted. And there were others that as they were packaging um, whatever the goods were, uh, they were you know, thanking the, the shopper and asking them to leave a good review. And the reviews shot up. Um, and you, know, you have all of these things that just from investing a little bit of time and effort, just like you would in store with you know, people on the sales floor, um, into the online channel. We've seen it for years with versions of live chat, not just the reactive live chat where someone takes the initiative to fill out a form, but proactive where you've got reps that are actually watching what someone is doing on the site, what they're adding to cart, how long they're on the site, what pages they're hanging out on, and proactively reaches out to them to help them and to offer assistance, just like you would in brick and mortar that, you know, someone sees you're, you're hanging around the $3,000 boots for a while, they're going to come over and help. Uh, that or they should find another job because <laughs> uh, I, I would hope that management won't keep them around forever. But those are just a few, you know, examples. The list does luckily go on and on. And uh, of course, when it comes to shopping experience, Things like, you know, just the navigation, the speed, these all these other things, the consistency of the site um, all, all have an effect. I mean, circling back to, you know, these, these big brands that had outages um, in, in Q4, you know, I, working for a web host, we're very, very attuned um, to scalability and uptime. You know, all of our auto scaling AWS customers stayed strong. Um, you know, we did a lot of load testing to make sure that people were ready for a lot more traffic than they'd ever seen. And, and those folks did great. We did see some folks at the last minute, for instance, which is unusual. Um, they were already seeing traffic surging upward uh, that Wednesday, that Thursday of Thanksgiving. Uh, and we were we had folks in data centers dealing with physical servers, adding RAM, adding adding resource, you know, spinning up um, extra servers and clusters uh, just at the very last minute, you know, when, you know, when the barbarians were already at the gate, the shoppers were, you know, if you want to think about it in brick and mortar, they're, they're outside and they're about to pour in in one of those YouTube videos where uh, everyone's surging and looking for that PS5 or whatever uh, item uh, may have been, you know, this, this is what was happening online, um, that there was more of that activity than I guess, you know, I, I've been doing this, uh, you know, for, for quite some time in the industry than, than uh, whether on the agency side in, in my career now uh, on the web hosting side, I was surprised to see just how this was happening. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that, that our team uh, really uh, did a, a really good job of rising to the occasion. And there's always lessons learned, especially in a unique year. Yeah. But I, I think that it all comes back to, and we're we're in January, so I guess the time is now for that strategic planning, for that 
you know, to look back. Yeah. I like to look at January as the beginning. I look yeah. at it as usually the halfway point because everything else starts from now. You're already late. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that's a, you know, to, to identify both of the points that you guys just made, um, you know, I, I think COVID um, uh, accelerated something that was already on the rise, which is e-commerce and people, you know, uh, unfortunately are used to the transactional if you can stand out and you can elevate your brand to something that can be personal online, in addition to the transaction, I think, you know, there's a lot of room for uh, competition to enter into your space of transactions like Amazon. Um, but I think what COVID did was, uh, you know, in accelerating is it um, has increased or it, you know, I like to say habits are uh, hard to make and they're even harder to break. And the habit that I think we made in 2020 was shopping online um, and everything delivered to my door at an accelerated pace. So, you know, to Robert's point of, you know, is your infrastructure ready for 2021 and beyond? You know, it's really something to start. Right. And I, and I think, uh, you know, from the logistics standpoint, you know, getting more boxes out more quickly, um, you know, and getting returns uh, stop gapped, um, you know, with those personalized experiences, with the information that's put online, um, you know, working upstream uh, this year, I think should be a theme instead of, you know, catching the fish as they're coming downstream, right? Let's, let's really work um, hard to get ahead of the curve of 2021 and 2022 and beyond. Because I don't think e-commerce is not going away. Nobody will argue that point. Um, and brick and mortar is not going to all of a sudden uh, reverse course, but there's going to be a dance of extraordinary experiences that people want to have either online or in store. And when you have an extraordinary experience, you hardly ever have regret um, to your point of $3,000 shoes. I'm keeping those shoes even if they hurt my feet because I got wine and cheese uh, you know, delivered with them uh, you know, kind of thing. And, and I would never walk back into that store and that guy who just spent three hours selling me shoes, he's not getting them back, you know, cause it would be embarrassing <laughs> because I made that decision to take those home with me. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, better pictures, more online, reaching out to the customer, developing that rapport, understanding the customer that you're dealing with so that um, you can guide them in such a way. Um, you don't necessarily need to sell more 99 cent lipstick or whatever you had mentioned, what you need to do is you need to sell less lipstick, um, better quality at a higher margin um, to actually make uh, some profit. You know, to your point of the, the Bezos model and is it sustainable with Amazon and different things? You know, I, I, I think year over year, you know, the infrastructure side, right? The, the AWS services has been more profitable than the, um, the product services. Um, so how do you growth mix for, for us in web hosting? So uh, I, I can only right. say that, um, the demand only continues to increase. So how do you, so I think Bezos, the good thing about him is he, he's been evolving. Um, Tesla, I'm, I'm glad I didn't buy a Tesla. Um, other than that, uh, the only but if you take the, the just to wrap that one thing up, if you take that Bezos model of putting together services and products, um, and they can do it with infrastructure and product retail, how do you do that in your business for what you're good at? If you're selling, you know, um, uh, uh, 
lotions and uh, massage oils, and you're coupling that with your, you know, consulting business of how to lead a better lifestyle kind of thing. I think that's where the small independent medium and, and small retailers can really start to shine is how do you adopt that services and all about MMR and that's monthly reoccurring revenue. Mm-hmm. And that is the holy grail for every company. You need to find a way to get your MMR coming in. That way you can forecast throughout the year how much your revenue is per year, even if you lose customers or you don't. That's why the subscription-based services are such a hot topic right now. But my forecast of the subscription-based services is that sometime, at some point they're going to burn out because you're not going to need all that shit forever. Like well, after a while, you're going to have enough hot sauce. I mean, it's, it's yeah, and and, and that started in mail order, really, where people would yeah. get you know whatever the latest you know record or cassette or or CD was, or uh, you know they'd get their acne medication or you know whatever big services that um, you know that, that worked really well for that um, you know and and worked well off infomercials and other things got people signed up you know anything renewable um, or that you're going to have a new product next month. Um, you know, always good. I, you know, I, I think for me, it's also just stepping back and saying, you know, back to the point of if you see a trend, the shoppers are returning certain things for mm-hmm. a reason um, because they misunderstood. It was something that if they were in store that they would have figured out, but they're not figuring out online. You know, there are, you know, I don't know. I, I once in a while watch... Um, uh, I, Shark Tank? <laughs> I watch Shark Tank all the time and I'm like, yeah, you guys will get that going for a little bit, but you already know how much Shark Tank takes from every person that shows up on the show. So, yeah, you know, the thing is, is that it, you might be able to get it going if you're able to explain it to people. You might be able to get it going if you're able to get it through the right channel. But the thing is, is that you have to get people to understand. That's why anybody that has something that might be a supplement or something that's not as factual or as easily explained gets like booed off the show in the first setting. Yeah. So, um, and I think the same should apply to the website that if you've got competing products and you don't have a little video there that walks people through the guide of how to choose between them yet. Well, there you go, you know, and uh, maybe it doesn't have to be a video, maybe, you know, the medium that you choose, the, you know, how you want to do it makes sense. But people love watching a video about, you know, the top 10 frying pans and which one is best for this or that, or I don't know, you know, whatever, uh, whatever industry, right, you know, whatever product line, um, they want to know that they love going in store and dealing with an expert that's been working there for 10 or 20 years and that really knows everything in that aisle. They, they uh, want that experience because when I go online and I have talked to someone via chat and I know English is not their first language. And I have to say, I've worked with the Philippines. I worked with India. I've worked with China and I don't hold that against them. Mm-hmm. But if they can't get the simple meaning of something that I'm saying, I'm like, can I speak to a supervisor? Can I speak to someone else? Because it's not that I'm discounting what they're saying, but if I see something like Walmart and they're like, I don't know what you mean, um, we're not communicating on the same level. No, it's the same way that people that deploy chat bots. There are times and places, like if it's really there for tracking your order or something more simple, maybe that that makes sense. If I'm trying to get advice on you know something more particular and I realize I'm trying to talk to a bot, 
Um, I, this, it's just ultimately frustrating. What a waste of time that uh, that I'm not going to get back. So you wrap up that experience real fast. Take away really are, especially on the B2B space, is that what I've noticed, especially a lot in the automotive aftermarket, a lot of the manufacturing, a lot of the um, true B2B space is that a lot of them are creating their online, their own online marketplaces. Because these places and their own own online forums, because these are the places, let's say if you're an electrician, you can go to your own online forum and talk to other electricians and say, hey, what do you use for this? And you can say, I use these guys. And you can go to their website, see their marketplace and purchase your items through there. And the great thing is, is that, you know, Tech Data has been a client of mine for many, many years. They're not currently, but... The thing is, is you can go to their website, you can see all the MSRP pricing, but if you have a contract with them, you sign in with your ID or whatever, you get to see your actual pricing, right? But they want to make sure that just Joe Blow going to the website can see what pricing looks like because they don't want people to feel confused. Like, why is all the pricing blocked out? But the thing is, is that, you know, by manufacturers and distributors being allowed their customers, their B2B customers, being able to go in and talk to other pros together, it allows them to create a community. And this is something that's huge. And it's been going on for years now. And it's something around Amazon. They can go and buy their stuff off Amazon. But most of the time, they want to talk to their friends. And then they want to go to the actual manufacturer distributor site and purchase it from them because it's cheaper. It's cheaper. Um, you can usually get a coupon or something else that you mm-hmm. can't with Amazon. Uh, you know that you got it from the manufacturer and not there's from some knockoff or third party or whatever. Yeah, that there's, there's a, big thing a lot of reasons Amazon to shop direct. We all know the story of Amazon, what they started doing five, 10 years ago, where they started screwing up the retailers. They start seeing what were the products that were selling out the most. And then they would go to China make the same products and then compete with their own customers selling the same products. I, I think they're great brands like Allbirds that have said, you know, we're not going yeah. on Amazon for that very reason or that, that, that remove themselves. Nike tested it out. Um, I, I don't track who is and isn't day to day. Yeah. It's, um, so so we, we've hit a lot of, I think, really good information. I mean, look, you know, it, You've got in terms of being ready for the next season, it's you know, <laughs> you want to trust but verify. Uh, only third point I will point out, yeah, is that what most retailers do not know about Amazon. I'm gonna blacklist off Amazon, they may take away my black card. I don't know. Um, is if you do not have your inventory, your pricing sheet, and everything else to them. Before August or September of that year, you cannot get into Black Friday or Christmas on Amazon, period. So because you have to have warehouse space, it has to be fulfilled by Amazon. Not only do they take a percentage of your sales, they take a percentage of your warehouse space, they take a percentage of everything. 
but you have to have agreement signed, everything in place before like August or September. So if you all of a sudden decide in October, you want to put your stuff up on Amazon, you cannot be on their site if this has not been done probably before June, July or August of that year. Yeah, and hopefully you've calculated in your returns percentage as part of that calculation when you started. Exactly. Because you have to make sure. And if you have big items, forget it. It's yeah, you you probably want that in there by like May or April. Yeah. And all right. So lot to get right on the logistics. Um, This was definitely a year where logistics stood out. Uh, versus other years, um, a lot to get right on the customer experience and and those relationships. Uh, we've definitely, I think, given p- listeners a lot to think about. Hopefully, not too much. Uh, that's the nature of of really trying to grow in this industry right now. Is that you know it, it takes uh, more than one mindset and and more than one skill set coming together. So. Um, Jane, Russ, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, as always, fantastic to talk with you both. Uh, I hope we can do a follow-up uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future and uh, uh, you know, really dive in like we did today. Um, yeah, if you guys want to follow me, I am at Firefly Jane on Twitter. Uh, my LinkedIn is LinkedIn in Jane Powell 13 and um, I also have my own consulting company at uh, Firefly uh, SalesConsulting.com. Awesome. Cool. And you can look us up, uh, Brand Nexity, B-R-A-N-D, Nexity, um, as in what's next for brands. And uh, you can find us all over the internet because it's kind of a unique term. Awesome. And wherever we post this, I'll make sure that we've got some uh, some nice links and things so people can can find you and chat with you and learn a little bit more. Um, And to our listeners, as always, um, you know, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Subscribe wherever you've, you've been listening and happy selling. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks for listening to the JetRails podcast. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We also post full videos of most episodes on the JetRails YouTube and Facebook channels. You can find links at jetrails.com forward slash podcast. Have questions about an episode? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover in the future? We're at JetRails on LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you want to sponsor this podcast? Sorry, but we're committed to ad-free listening. We are, however, always looking for guests that our listeners will benefit from. And don't forget to like the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. It's a small ask, but it's a big help. We appreciate it, and more importantly, we appreciate you.